Der Triathlon Show 212. Up, everybody, welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, we have a Scientific Triathlon Coaches Roundtable, as always, with James Teagle and Lachlan Kieran. The topic for today is training ideologies. We'll get right into that after thanking our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. And for many of you newer listeners who haven't been with us since day one or day 49, more specifically, Andy Blow, the founder of Precision Hydration, made his first appearance on the podcast back in that episode, 49. And that is when we covered the foundations, the basics of hydration and electrolytes and how that has an impact on performance. So if you haven't listened to that episode, I would highly recommend you go and do so. It is very practical and uh, not at all dogmatic, and Andy is uh, really knowledgeable about both the uh, the practical side and also the scientific side of hydration and electrolytes, so highly, highly recommended listening. You can check out Precision Hydration's electrolyte, electrolyte products on precisionhydration.com and get your first box or tube for free with the promo code DEATHTRAFLONSHOW, all one word, all caps. And big thanks to Roka that you can find on roka.com. We have a new discount code and I want to get this out of the way first so that you don't use the old one anymore because the old code won't be working from now on. The new code is TTS20. So TTS20 for 20% off your entire order. TTS is all capital letters. Roka is the world-leading manufacturer of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear, and they are trusted by some of the best triathletes in the world, including athletes like Katie Zafiris, Flora Duffy, Lucy Charles, Mario Mola, and many, many more, because they have exceptional quality in all their products, and uh, their goal is to make Equipment that has no flaws whatsoever. There's plenty of attention to detail and research and development in every single one of their products, even if we're just talking about what seemingly could be seen as a simple pair of goggles. So check them out and use the new promo code TTS20 to get 20% off your entire order. And at the end of this episode, after our discussion, I will give you more details, but just a quick heads up that if you are a web designer or front-end developer, I'm looking to update the scientifictriathlon.com website in early 2020, and I need some professional help for that. So I'll give some more details at the end of the episode if you are a web designer or front-end developer, and that might be a project of interest to you. But without any further ado, here's the discussion with uh, James Teagle and Lachlan Kieran. Welcome back for another Coaches Roundtable and this one being on training ideologies. It's going to be an interesting one to hear your thoughts on. But uh, first, uh, James, uh, how are things uh, going or in the UK for you? Yeah, hi guys. Yep. Uh, well, everyone knows the UK is cold and wet and damp. But uh, yeah, I'm settling into winter pretty well. Uh, most of the athletes I coach are in the winter period, so you know they're going through their base period, building up their training from from their recovery period, which we had you know 
now for most athletes quite quite a while ago. Um, but yeah, I mean, things are going well. It's obviously a quieter time of year. Uh, that said, I do have some athletes uh, competing in Australia, which is really exciting. And they're making me a bit jealous because of the, uh, the temperature there. Lucky on your side? Yeah, look... Yeah, I'm at the other end of the spectrum. It was uh, 31 degrees Celsius by 8, 10 a.m. this morning. So we uh, the bunch rolled out at 5 a.m. to try and beat the heat. Um, but, yeah, from an athletic standpoint, just getting back into a bit of training. And most of my athletes are going into their winter base, but it's certainly exciting to have a few racing here in Australia as well. Right, perfect. So let's get into the, the topic here, which is going to be uh, training ideologies. And uh, I guess there's no perfect term to describe what we are, um, I guess, uh, alluding to with this term. But uh, just things like people throw around terms like linear training or polarized training or uh, Canova-based training, threshold training, all these sorts of things. That's what we're going to be discussing here. And uh uh, the things that uh, that come along with with these types of different models, patterns, or training, whatever you want to call it. And um, first things first, what are the like on a general level positives and negatives of uh, having and using these different ideologies? So can we get the good without having to suffer from the drawbacks and pitfalls of maybe getting dragged too far down into rabbit holes with uh, with any one of these? Uh, these ideologies james what are your thoughts well for me it depends on you know obviously all these ideologies have have worked and you know do work for different people and you know no you know, for one person it might work but it might not work for you so i'm not saying that each any ideology is perfect for me it depends on you know your background and sport how many years you've been doing it you know what your aims are are you aiming to become world champion or are you aiming just to be fit because obviously different ideologies are you know, going to play, dif- uh, going to help you different ways there. You know, what's your access facilities where you live? Can you actually complete the, ide- the ideology? Can you can you train that way? And, you know, do you have the time available to train that way? Um, for me, you know, the positives of ideologies are, look, you've got, a, you've got a structure, you know, with clear reasoning and direction. Um, and you've also got examples of how others have done it. So you can fall back on that and look at it and say, look, yeah, I know so-and-so did this. And, you know, this is the results they got. Uh, the negatives are, you know, they are they are limited in scope. You know, for example, you know, if we're looking at some of the run specific ones, uh, then, you know, it doesn't necessarily apply directly to triathlon because triathlon is free sports together. Uh, and you've got to take that into consideration. Uh, you know, it may not suit individual needs again. I mentioned that. And I think the other thing to mention is, especially if you look at something like Lydiard, you know, obviously it's evolved, but, you know, it's 50 years old now and information is, is evolving. I think people need to be, be aware of that and consider that. Lucky, what do you want to add to that? Yeah, look, yeah, I tend to agree that we still have to treat every athlete as an individual. Um, that's probably the crux to any of these things and, and trying to pigeonhole anyone into a certain um, set of ways is not necessarily the best way of doing things. And, you know, as James kind of mentioned, off, you know, there is a chance that we could put someone into a very specific ideology and, and see results, but is, is that optimal? And that's a question that we should always be asking. Um, and I think that in answer to your question, yeah, we, we can certainly take certain things from, from these ideologies and, and use them and, um, you know, negate some of the other things. But in saying that, you know, some of these ideologies are kind of directly opposing on some certain issues and that's where we really have to decide 
you know, on a case by case basis, how we look at each athlete. Yeah, and that's uh, that's a very good point, and and I guess that goes to show that there are many different ways to skin a cat, and it should be evidence for us that there's no one right answer because you have certain ideologies that are almost polar opposites of each other, and they have still worked for different athletes uh, to really really good levels. So. So that's that's something to keep in mind, and and we can just uh, get a larger arsenal of tools in our toolbox to to draw upon for the individual athlete and try to decide what what aspects of of certain ideologies might work best for for which athletes. Uh, one negative that I also would like to add here to this list is that in many cases we uh, as athletes we may be tempted to just looking at the the sort of the abstract of the ideology, but not really looking at the uh, looking deeper into it and seeing all that it evolves for example for runners that want to say that they are lydiard based runners what uh, tends to happen is that they run massive volumes but they forget about uh, doing enough strength work hill work and maybe they do that but maybe they don't do the the bounding to really build that uh, that uh, that bone strength and uh, and also the the springiness in their legs etc which uh, was an important part for Lydia to do before they went into the the faster running on the track to to really put that base into place so we we might do some things but skip other things so so it all comes down to like if you are going to do something then make sure that you are really you really know the entire thing and, and not just the the high level the uh the headline headline news of of any given ideology so let's with that yeah i think further to, i just wanted to add there sorry michael that you know um with a lot of these ideologies and as james mentioned some of them are you know fairly old and pre you know having gps watches and power meters and, and all of these kind of things so a lot of them are based on rpe and feel and um, I think for a lot of, especially triathletes, these are things that potentially they're not very well versed in. So diving head deep, you know, into into one of these ideologies without understanding your body in that way can also be a little bit dangerous. Yeah, very good point. Uh, James, anything else to add, or or should we move on to? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I just echo your point. You know, you've got to know you've got to know the inside and you know the outside of them. Basically, you've got to know. Yeah, more than just the abstract. I think that's really important. Uh, you've got to make sure it's, it's doable if you're going to do it. Uh, and, you know, you've got the ability, because these training ideologies have been around for a while, that if you are going to do one, you can always learn from other people's mistakes. And, you know, again, just, just echoing home that because it worked for someone, it doesn't mean it will work for you. And I think that's really important uh, because, you know, everyone is individual. And like you mentioned on it, you know, people have, have different needs. And, you know, you've got to, you've got to take that into account. Yep. Let's uh, discuss some some points about uh, a certain number of ideologies that uh, that we have here on the list in front of us, and and we can go in order so that uh, I mentioned the ideology, and then uh, James, you can start and give your your comments on it, and then we we move to Lucky, and then we move to to the next on uh, on the list, uh, or I might add something if I have something to add. Uh, so, and starting with uh, not all of these, as James mentioned, are triathlon ideologies. Some are more running based, and some are cycling based. So we'll start with the running one, which is uh, Lydiard. And uh, yeah, so James, what are your comments on Lydiard uh, based training? Um, so, so when you look at Lydiard based training, obviously, you know he started doing this fifty years ago. It's it's kind of your classic big volume in the winter, and then a sharpening towards towards race season. My my comments on on Lydiard are, you know. It it does require a decent amount of volume. It does require you to have 
a decent aerobic base, you know, to, to develop into race season. There's no point in just starting in the sharpening phase, for example. I think, you know, the general principle is that obviously athlete stamina is developed first and speed is developed second. So as long as you've got the time available to do that and, you know, you've got the capacity to available to do that because, you know, it's going to take, you know, a lot of running and a lot of strength work, uh, like as you mentioned, then then it's okay. Um, the other thing I'd mention is, now, obviously, like, as, you, as you alluded to, uh, it does require a bit of hill running. Um, so if you don't live anywhere near, near any hills, then you can use a treadmill, but it's going to be a lot harder to do. Um, but it's, it's a very interesting, uh, you know, ideology. Uh, you know, 50 years ago, as, as like you said, you know, when they didn't really have heart rate monitors, they weren't using power, you know, and they were running by feel. I think one of the things people don't understand when they do uh, look at Arthur Lillard is although they were running you know they weren't running really really fast they were they weren't hanging around either when they were training sessions so it, you know the long run for example you know two and a half hours it wasn't run at a recovery pace it was run at you know more of a steady pace so I think you know that's just getting into the ideology and you know just uh, just understanding it but yeah um, my, my my real points there are essentially it does require a good amount of volume and the time available to train um, it builds great endurance and stamina uh, speed of developed seconds, which, you know, could be a very good thing for a triathlon, which, you know, is a long race. Uh, and it does build a very good base. Yeah, look, I um, I tend to agree. And, and I think when we look at Lydiard, we have to definitely consider the fact that it was, um, you know, a running-based ideology in the sense that, you know, Lydiard talks a lot about 100 miles a week. And when you break that down for the kind of runners that were, he was coaching that's probably only 11 or 12 hours of total volume when it comes to running so um in the scheme of what a lot of triathletes do it's it's probably not that much in terms of just volume um on an hour basis you know if you were trying to implement that uh in a triathlon setting um with biking and swimming as well um to kind of implement Lydiard across all three would be a, a really interesting prospect i think and um, you know, especially on the bike, just looking at it practically, you know, that might look something like, you know, 70 to 75% of threshold as, as a bit of a, you know, number just to pick. But, you know, for some athletes that could require riding around at a fairly fast pace and, um, you know, the caloric load of that as well could be quite high. So um, I think if you're going to go out and do that for 20 hours a week plus, run 10 hours a week and you know all of a sudden you're at 30 hours a week or something like that it, it can it can kind of balloon out and if we're considering it in the realm of an age group athlete who has 12 to 15 hours um, and is doing triathlon I think it, it's probably a little bit different but in saying that I do think that there is a lot to be said about you know that kind of sub LT1 training and, and kind of training at LT1 which when you really break Lydiard down um, you know, I'm not sure they knew that that's what they called it at the time, but it's basically where they were running a lot of their volume at. Yeah, I would agree. It's uh, they they're not hanging around there, as James said, and they, and LT1 is probably a good estimate for where they were training. And and then the other thing to remember is that the sharpening phase that they did that was serious running. That was a lot of fast running and uh, and really really heavy stuff and uh, and that requires a massive base of of just resilience so that's why they had all this volume but also why they had all these these hills in in their running so i think that uh, the danger here for 
an age grouper trying to implement linear training, whether it's triathlon or running, is that A, you might not be doing the, the base training at a hard enough intensity because and we're not talking about like very hard, but still running around that LT1 and, and it would be easy to get uh, lured into a trap of just just jogging, uh, jogging for <laughs> forever. And, and then the second thing is that are you really able to do the amount of, of work, the amount of miles and the amount of, of strength work on hills that it takes to really then be able to do a lot of high intensity work when it comes to the sharpening phase that was also central to Lydiard, although that does get, get lost quite a bit. Yeah, and look, I think, I I mean, I was just going to add, you know, I mean, I do, I I do really love kind of what Lydiard came up with in his approach. Um, But I also think that there is a consideration of just the fact that, you know, for Lydiard, it was kind of like a very long period of that, which, you know, for a lot of age group athletes, um, the the mental stimulus is, is probably not that high, especially if you're somewhere like Scandinavia and, and doing all your training inside over winter. Um, I can't imagine that, you know, trying to just do everything um, kind of around LT1 would be the most uh, engaging thing ever. Yeah. And I was, I was going to add that, you know, the athletes that Yard was generally working with, you know, when he was implementing you know, the, the top of this uh, ideology were obviously already well trained. So to jump in and, you know, do his program in, in the way he, he wanted to do, I think you do need a decent amount of training already. Um, and I think, you know, just, just got to bear that in mind. Definitely, yeah. Let's move on to the next one, which is the the very interval-heavy uh, type of ideology. And I've uh, name-dropped uh, Emil Satopek here, uh, the old Olympic gold medalist, and uh, so another runner here. But uh, this is actually similar to what uh, quite a lot of people might be doing in the modern day here with things like master swim squad or going to spin classes and so on, where, where a lot of the work really is heavily interval based and and there might not be that much else going on there so uh james thoughts on the interval heavy ideology so obviously you know zatopec was uh you know very interesting and his training was completely out there at the time but i think interval based training has you know has a very you know very high prominence and you know it should have very high prominence in triathlon as a sport because actually it allows you to train at a specific pace for longer than you would be able to, you know, if you were just to run it on its own, which, you know, for me allows greatest training stimulus. For example, you go down the track and you run 5K, then you've run 5K, but actually break that into intervals and you can make that a 7K session because you're having a bit of rest in between. So if that's something you're aiming to do, then it's great because it does allow you to have extra time at that intensity and therefore a bit extra stimulus. Um, you know, it's also you know, greater for beginners, you know, people who struggle to run and struggle to cycle, swim, you know, maybe don't have that great, you know, aerobic capacity or, or maybe just strength work really, you know, do find intervals a lot, a lot easier. And, you know, in terms of the actual benefits, you know, I think other than combined with high volume, you know, you can't really beat, you know, the actual effects on the VO2, uh, your VO2 peak, for example, from that kind of training. Um so yeah, I think there's there's a lot of positives from it, but the negatives are that when you when you take it down the track or you know you take it in the pool, for example, in a master swim session, people often do it way too fast. You know, when Zestepec was doing it, he was doing it at race pace. He wasn't running, you know, ridiculously fast. Although for most people it would have been, you know, it was five k, ten k race pace he was aiming at most of the time. Um, and people often add in intervals too much too soon because it is, 
it is quite easy to do compared to just pure threshold work. And, you know, I think that's just something you've got to bear in mind because it does obviously negate the injury risk because, you know, you're not doing as much high intensity all at once. But if you do too much intervals, then obviously that, that training, that injury risk comes back and that, that burnout risk comes back as well. Yeah, look, I think personally my, you know, the thing I love about intervals um, is actually the way that they can be used to prevent injury, to be honest with you. I think that, you know, they allow that kind of uh, neuromuscular recovery between sets, especially swimming. You know, we can hold better form uh, doing, say, you know, 20 by 50 as opposed to doing Mm -hmm. 1K straight, Um, you know. In terms of the yeah. using intervals for VO2, I think, we, I mean, you know, we, we've discussed this, the three of us, uh, you know, together, but we're seeing that, like, volume probably trumps intensity a little bit um, when it comes to just the improving VO2 in itself. But, I mean, you know, we are talking about the realm of, a, say, a time-starved triathlete, then I think that there's certainly a place for interval training um, and, and those high intensity intervals um, that you kind of, you know, we see that hit science and, and those kind of things are promoting. I think um, they certainly have their place within the program of of an athlete. And I think it's important that we're getting that um, stimulus of all the energy systems as well um, and not falling into the trap of just training certain, you know, lower intensity energy systems. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'd just like to, so just, just clarify that. Uh, yeah, I, I completely agree. If you do ideal, if you do interval training properly, then reduce the injury risk. I, you know, I just try to make the point that actually, if you do, you know, because it is a bit easier to do than threshold work. So you can do a bit more work at it. You know, you can do a bit more interval work. Um, so if yeah, you just take totally. it too far too soon, you, that's the risk I see people getting injured. But yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, if you look at it as a whole, it's much less injurious than actually just purely focusing on your speed work, for example. Yeah, and look, I, I mean, if I look at it in the realms of, say, you know, I mean, I've got Lydiard's book here and it's got things like, you know, a 5K race once a week and stuff mm. like that. And, um, you know, as you said, there's probably the load of that compared to, say, 5 by 1K at 5K race pace with, you know, 60 seconds recovery, um, you know, potentially there you're minimising your risk of injury or, or overtraining. And I think, the you know, the great thing about intervals is, especially when it comes down to triathlon, is that, you know, you are, that recovery time for a lot of athletes is so precious, you know, because even if you're, you know, only training nine, 10 hours a week, you still got to recover between those sessions. So actually having a session that allows you to be fresher for, for maybe the next day does have its real advantages because you know, that, that's a day that you're not spent, you know, actually trying to catch up and, you know, actually totally. you are yeah. able to get that intensity in. At the same time, yeah, and I think we're all always searching for the minimal effective dose. I think we can all agree on that. Um, you know, that's what we're after. Yeah, I, th- I think the minimal effective dose here is the key, and intervals have a very important place in in endurance training, whatever the the discipline. And uh, and I think that the, when we're looking at master swim squad or spin classes, they do get people much fitter than they were when they were starting in those. Uh, in those squads so they do work even if you and and you can do intervals almost every day if you if you pace yourself just a little bit like like james said not doing the intervals quite all out but uh, like doing like saddlepack running them at at race pace which uh, if it's a 5k or even a 10 or especially a 10k race pace and you're doing 200s uh, that doesn't feel very hard of course when you're doing 40 of those 200s or 400s then it starts to 
to feel hard towards the end, but uh, but you're definitely breaking up the work and allowing yourself to do a lot more work and uh, and probably the session RP and and even maybe the physiological response might be more advantageous from something like that compared to doing a long continuous threshold run. That being said, I think that uh, that somebody like uh, Satopek, he was uh, revolutionary in the time and uh, not a lot of others were doing the work the way he did and but runners started copying him and uh, and they started getting faster for him to even be including intervals made made him very fast and he was obviously somebody who could absorb them a lot but could he have been even faster if he would have done slightly less intervals and uh, and replaced some of that with with just aerobic volume and and i think it's safe to assume that he probably could so so just going going all in on intervals and and doing them uh, day in day out i don't think that's the the solution i think it comes down to finding the uh, the minimal effective dose but but what we can learn from these types of uh, of programs and environments is that uh, there might be periods where you can do a lot of them and you can adapt positively to them and then the question is just just how much can you do and still see a positive adaptation and a positive return on investment from from that work and uh, without getting injured and overtrained so uh, and there's no right or wrong there it's going to be individual but that that's i think the takeaway for me with the intro heavy ideology let's uh, go then to the the threshold heavy ideology and uh, the person here that comes to mind for me again going back to running is uh, coach bob larson who coached uh, meb kafleski among others but also was uh, one a coach who revolutionized the the first american running boom with uh, with his san diego runners and uh, and then a lot of of other coaches started to to copy him and, and start to introduce a lot of long long hard runs running at what then later became known as the as the threshold what what do you think about uh, about this approach well i think for me you know when you look at what larson did you know People were doing a lot of intervals at that time. Uh, and then obviously he brought in the threshold work because he could see that at the end of a race, people were starting to fall off and actually you need to, you need to be able to run fast at that point. For me, obviously it does require, you know, a lot of good training to be able to run at threshold. You know, you can't just run, you know, you can just run at threshold, obviously, but you know, if you want to run at a decent pace at threshold, then you need a good background in training. I think, you know, natural terms, threshold training is great once you have a good base of fitness already um it does like i say allow you to run to the end of a race and you know be competitive at the end of a race if you get it right um and it builds a great aerobic base um i think the way larson did it was you know he did he did combine you know a number of methods really uh and i think that i think that's why it was so effective um you know i think what he did was he looked at essentially what Lydiard did and what Zetopek did and, and combined it. And I think, you know, actually when we see what happened, you know, the results kind of speak for themselves. You know, it was it was effective. Uh, but yeah, there are some drawbacks in that. You actually need a decent amount of aerobic base to, to do it, really. Yeah, I, I mean, my probably issue with training at threshold is that it's not a static point. Um, and I think that's probably something that, we we miss a lot in training is that like threshold is is not just a static number if we're talking on the bike it's not say let's just pick a number out of the air 260 watts you know it's not going to be 260 watts today and and 260 watts tomorrow you know we could see big differences in in practice and um you know especially say at the end of a, a long ride where you have some you know 
um, slow twitch fiber fatigue and and you know then in practice your threshold is dropping as you start to to cycle in some more fast twitch fibers so um, I think you know as James said to to do a lot of training at threshold really does require you to have that um, fiber fatigue resistance because once that once those slow twitch fibers start to fatigue you know we see that um, threshold actually drops so then when where are you actually training and um, you know if I look at kind of what the say Norwegian triathletes do and, and they've got you know lactate monitors out all the time then you know, that's probably a way to know that you are actually training out or around threshold but um, to, to do it off field can actually be quite difficult in, in practice I think um, but happy to hear your input. Well I would argue that doing it on field is probably one of the best ways of doing it Compare, I do agree that uh, having a static number, a power number or pace number to shoot for, that's that's not a good idea to do it. But but I think that doing it on feel is sort of how, how this whole concept developed. And it's not about running at a certain pace or running at a certain or biking at a certain power, but it's about going for a certain distance or for a certain duration. So today it might be six miles. Uh, on Monday, it might be 10 miles. Then uh, on Wednesday, it might be eight miles and it might be on a on different routes. So a hilly one, a flat one. It might be in very windy conditions. And the idea is just to, to cover that distance at something that is very fast and very hard, but still sustainable. You can cover that distance in at a steady steady output level and and that's where like being very in tune with your body comes into play and uh, and if you can use the session rpe methodology i would guess that the sessions should feel like or i would say that the sessions should feel like an eight or a nine although probably in the old days at least many of them ended up being uh, tens because of the fact that people were running in groups yeah. and uh, and that's probably what's and that's happens probably in in group situations and that's why I get kind of a bit cautious around this with, um, you know, especially age group athletes. I mean, I think it requires a very mature athlete um, in terms of someone who's who has put in a lot of time into into learning your body to actually really implement this well, um, you know, because you, that's the thing. You don't want them going out and hitting 10s every day because, you know, that's a slippery slope. And um, I, I know just having worked with a lot of athletes that that probably – could end up being the case if, if you weren't monitoring it very closely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, you've already mentioned it, but you want you want a minimal effective dose, and yet people need, if they're going to train by this ideology, they need to check their egos at the door because I think, you know, there is a tendency for, you know, people to do a lot of work at threshold and not to yield the results that, you know, other, other things would because basically they haven't checked their ego at the door. They've trained too hard and, you know, they haven't recovered properly for the next day. And then the next day's session is also compromised and so on and so on. And actually, because they're training too hard, they're not actually training the right energy systems as well. So, yeah, checking the ego at the door for this kind of training is is definitely crucial. You do need to know your body really, really yeah, well. There is definitely a- yeah, and I guess the other thing is, oh, I was just going to say, the other thing is when we're considering this across three sports in terms of triathlon, um, and probably training twice a day, um, you know, at least some days for athletes, I think it has to be very careful on how you actually implement this. You have to definitely think about the structure of your week. Yeah, I completely agree with that. If you can do fresher work, I think, you know, I've seen benefits from doing it, uh, but you definitely have to think, you know, what are the other sessions in the week and, and where are they placed after this? Because it is probably going to have, well, it is going to have a, a, 
a high toll on your recovery and actually you know the amount of stress it, reco- it causes is, is going to be high relative to, to other methods yeah i think a, a mindset shift to to be able to implement threshold training in a more effective and safe manner would be to consider it tempos less threshold rather than as most athletes do i think uh, consider it threshold that becomes vo2 max so you're always edging above that threshold and trying to go faster and that's where i think that this training methodology can be quite dangerous these days when we are measuring so much because we always want to see our thresholds go up so if we consider ourselves as having an an ftp of 300 watts we we won't accept going at 280 watts we we will go at 300 watts and then the next week we want to go at 305 and then 310 and so on and and that's where where it can become become a, a really slippery slope yeah but i think the, the one one good thing that from uh, in the running days at least that happened is that the the threshold training was sort of a reaction to the the very interval heavy training and it did seem to to slightly reduce injuries a lot of it was probably just that they started running on trails and uh, and gravel roads rather than running on the track uh, around the track all the time but uh, but there is potentially a case uh, for that uh, slightly lesser impact forces in running at least would be kind of a bit kinder on the body compared to to the the slightly uh, slightly faster intervals totally yeah a similar i mean when it yeah sorry james so, sorry i was going to mention you know how you're on about obviously using power to, to measure this you know on the bike for example i often use uh heart rate of my athletes or the athletes i coach because actually there's a bit less ego associated with that and you know heart rate is fairly accurate around threshold as long as you you know as long as you've done the testing properly you can use that for it and it, it does tend to sometimes check the ego a bit more so you're not chasing power i'd sometimes tell athletes to to cover up their power meters because you know i'm more interested in you know the actual adaptation and not, not them checking their ego by uh trying to push the power they pushed last week or you know what we got in the ftp test that's an excellent point, and I think that also what that allows you to do is to actually perform a much bigger workload, the same way that we talked about with interval training, because you're not training slightly above threshold, but you're you end up training actually at your real threshold, not your your vanity FTP or anything. So yeah, if you can't do two by twenty minutes at threshold, then it's not your threshold. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to the the next one, which is uh, a bit similar, to be honest. Uh, it's uh, the Canova East Africa running style, and uh, which is also, in some ways, similar. I think to to the way that many cyclists train, World Tour cyclists, and uh, this is something that has become quite relevant. I get a lot of questions after having uh, interviewed Matt from um, from Sweat Elite about about this. So, so what are your thoughts on the Canova or East African way of training? So for me, this is, you know, a speed endurance focus, but, but not speed necessarily. So, you know, generally you know, the whole, whole, whole ideology is around increasing volume at the same speed. So for example, if you want to run 5k at you know, 20k an hour, then increasing it basically three, four, 5k at 20k an hour, just, just to make sure you can do it. For me, obviously it does tie in pretty well with, with a kind of sweet spot training we, we're going to mention later on. Um, you know, with that kind of that great background that the athletes already have, you know, it is essentially, you know, an athlete that it allows athletes to, to run at the race speed, you know, and, and it obviously that means that by the time they get to the race, they know whether or not they can actually hold it uh, most of the time. Um, 
when you look at the athletes who it's actually working for, though, especially Canova, you know, these athletes he's taking on and, you know, in East Africa, they're probably already at 90% of their 100% potential. Um, so I think that's just something you got to bear in mind when you're looking at this focus because because the speeds they want to run at, you know, they are so high uh, already. Uh, they, they already have that level already. So they're able to run at, at high speed already. Um, so they already have things like, you know, a high maximum lactate steady state. You know, if we're going to talk uh, around around that. Um, you know, which is really important. Um, I think Michael's disappeared. <laughs> is he gone? Yeah, it looks that way. But um, I'll just continue. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I, Go on. I think um, when we're talking about Canova, you know, one of the main things to consider is that, um, you know, they, these guys are tra- and girls are, are training so that a marathon doesn't really feel like a super long race. You know, they're training for 42 kilometres, yeah. you know. Um, big, long, long runs and, and lots of long race pace efforts. And I think, you know, that those do definitely work, but as you said, they they do impose a lot of stress on the system, those big sessions. So, um, you know, implementing them for, you know, a, an athlete who's racing, say, an Ironman and, and is on a limited budget to do a 40K long run or something like that is obviously um, – a, a massive toll on the body and, and we could be seeing, you know, one week recovery from just one session, which is obviously not what we want. And, um, you know, as you kind of mentioned, the the athletes that Canova are working with are already at such a high level that the minimum effective dose for actually improving at, at that level is probably a lot higher than what is required for a lot of athletes that would be listening to this podcast, including myself. I think when, when you look at <laughs> Yeah. When when you look at triathlon, I think it's important that, you know, one of, one of the most important things for me when, when you look at people across any training ideology is the ability to do it consistently. Uh, because ultimately, you know, triathlon is an endurance sport and I don't think there's any real way of hiding from the fact that you need to do volume to, to be good at it. You know, whether your aims are to be, you know, world champion or not, that's, that's you know, that's different. But if you want to get as good as possible, you need to do a decent amount of volume and actually, you know, having having the ability to run you know these runs as as they run you know it, as the way canova does it you know obviously requires that that great endurance and you know you do need the ability to be consistent so if you can't do it consistently I, i'd say this probably isn't the best way for you because you're not going to see the results you need because consistency yields results in triathlon in, in my opinion anyway yeah, for for sure. I, I lost you guys there for I dropped out, I think, for, for a while, so I didn't hear everything. So I apologize if I repeat some things. But but I would say that the one thing that I think we can uh, we can take away from the, the Canova model, which I think tends to work pretty well, at least for uh, for half and full distance triathlon, is that it, it is kind of pyramidal in that uh, a lot of it is about long tempo runs we're building the the base we're pushing the threshold from below but we're still uh, every couple of weeks we're going to the track and doing doing work at at 10k race pace or 5k race pace so so slightly above threshold basically high intensity interval training uh although it's not uh, you know the puke in the gutter kind of high, high intensity interval training necessarily i think that that pyramidal approach is something that that tends to work well for long distance triathletes but yes, with these athletes, they are really exceptional. They have been running so many thousands of kilometers throughout their their lives from growing up and running to school that that the the way that they implement it is is really extreme and very few 
people athletes in the world could 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 do it the way they're doing so it definitely needs to be to be scaled down significantly yeah i tend to agree so let's move on to the next one on the list, which is the uh, Tri Sado or Brett Sutton uh, strength based uh, type of training, famous for uh, including a lot of uh, of uh, pull boy and paddles in the swim and uh, and low cadence work on the bike and uh, hilly running. So uh, the strength based approach, uh, essentially. Uh, what do you think about that, James? Um, so obviously, you know, he's had results with it. So, you know, it's, it's hard to argue with that, you know, there's obviously been athletes who, who haven't had results for it, but you know, there, he's had, he's had some very good results of it regardless. So, you know, it is, it is a bit different and it is a bit strength based. Actually, you know, when you said, uh, Sutton, the thing that I focused on was, you know, what I wanted to focus on was his actual reverse periodization. So although he doesn't periodize, you know, in a traditional sense, he does use reverse periodization. So, for example, you know, training a high threshold in the in the winter months of cycling, and you know, as as they get closer to race season, layering on the aerobic aerobic volume and the actual ability to do it aerobically, which for me has real positives. You know, especially if you live in somewhere in the northern hemisphere, because it allows you to improve your FTP over the winter period, and you know, make the use of those those daylight hours you know, in the summer for that for that longer volume. You know, obviously, when you look at that approach in the other direction, you know, because you are quite fit quite soon, you know, there is a chance of mental burnout because, you know, you've been working hard for the winter and your race, race is still a fair way away. And, you know, you could you could peak too early. But for me, that that was that was the most interesting thing when I, when I looked at, you know, when you when you, you know, mentioned Brett Sutton, that was reverse periodization, which I don't think we've seen much of yet in the other ide- ideologies. In terms of his strength-based stuff, you know, obviously cycling at 60, 70 RPM, you know, to improve, improve your, you know, your, your torque, you know, it makes sense in practice, actually, whether or not it has too much, you know, muscular fatigue for, for athletes running off a bike, you know, in terms of that will be, that's my concern around it, you know, obviously it does work for some athletes though. And, you know, when we look at pool paddles in the pool, um, you know, that has tremendous benefit in that even when you're tired, if you're using pull and paddles, you know, you're pulling properly and your body's in the right position. Um, you know, he doesn't waste his time with, with kick as he, as he puts it. Um, he doesn't waste his time with too much, uh, technical stuff, you know, high arm recovery is high elbow recovery is not really a massive thing. You know, it is very, very focused on specific elements of triathlon. Um, I think it's definitely a different approach. I don't think, you know, you can write it off. I think you just got to take it. Is it, is it right for me? And is this the right approach for, for what I'm able to do? And actually, is it something I want to do? Uh, you know, cause it is, is quite hard, <laughs> but I don't think it's a bad ideology at all. I think you, know, you just got to take those things into account. Yeah. Look, my, when I look at Sutton uh, these days, you know, I think um, we can probably look at it and I would love to test some of his athletes. I think he's probably just, you know, his approach is definitely kind of implementing a, a VLA max or, you know, lowering VLA max kind of approach with the low cadence stuff, um, you know, uh, and I think that's probably how we would term it at Scientific Triathlon if we had an athlete with a high VLA max and we were doing low cadence stuff. Um, I think Sutton, you know, probably just anecdotally saw it working and, and we saw, you know, I think it's been within cycling for a long time that low cadence work um, and, you know, it it has worked and um i guess we know now that it does help in terms of reducing vla max in kind of doing that tempo 
effort or, you know, around, say, 80 85% of threshold, so well and truly sub-threshold, but, um, you know, at low cadence where we are getting higher torque and, and engaging more muscle fibres, um, I, I think it has a lot of value. Um, in terms of Sutton, I think the real thing with the Sutton approach is that it is very hands-on and very day-to-day with the athletes. So, um, you know, I, I think that there's this perception that the athletes do a lot of volume and massive sessions, and I, I'm sure they do, but at the same time, they also do definitely have very easy days or very or periods of very light training where, um, you know, the coach sees, sees fit to do so. And, and I think that um, that's probably their point of view point of difference is that um you know with Sutton it's very much a day-to-day thing and you get your training on the day um whereas you know it's probably not super periodized or planned out in in um or at least for the athlete I'm sure Brett might have his own little plans laid out I think I think I might be wrong but I think he asks athletes not to question his approach which you know he he uh, justifies by saying, look, if you're questioning my approach, you're probably in the wrong place because you, know, you should believe in what you're doing. But, you know, actually, as a coach, I do quite like athletes, you know, in my opinion, to ask why they're doing things and to know, actually, you know, this is the purpose of the session. Yeah. Um, so, you know, for some athletes, it might work. Some athletes, it might not. Uh, it depends who you are. And look, I think as, as a coach, you know, I firmly believe that um, you know, we're trying to make ourselves redundant to the athlete. I, I mean, I want all my athletes to learn and eventually know as much as I do. I mean, that that's – I think learning is part of the process and, and part of, you know, what athletes should experience in a coach-athlete relationship, to be honest with you. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that, that's – I totally agree. I mean, you want the athletes you coach to be as adaptable and as, you know, as queued up as possible so that you know if they weren't being coached you know I aim for a similar thing that by the time I finish coaching an athlete they should be able to pretty much coach themselves obviously it's useful to have someone to have a look at what you're doing and you know that objective view of things but yeah I think that, that's something I aim for especially I think it is valuable to have athletes developing in a, in a learning sense as well as well as physical uh, I've had the privilege of attending a seminar in person with uh, Brett Sutton, and uh, it was very interesting, uh, shall we say. There were a lot of, uh, of good take-home messages from there. I learned a lot from it. Uh, some things that I, I do not agree with, uh, you're right. I think that he does ask the athletes not to question them, and I think that's one big part of the explanation for why, at least in the last 20 years i think in the 90s or maybe 90s and early 2000s it was a bit different but in the last 15 years maybe he's had most of his success with the female athletes and he did comment on that that uh, the female athletes are uh, sort of better at, at trusting the process and trusting the coach whereas men tend to question things a lot more and that maybe doesn't seem to work with his approach as well uh and uh, yes, it is kind of a day-to-day based environment. Although, yeah, he might have have his own plans laid out for sure. But uh, but I actually think that that it is quite day-to-day, and because he's with the athlete and looking at the athlete, which of course is a big positive. Uh, some, I, I think that the strength-based stuff, as uh, Lockie mentioned there, it tends to work really well for for long distance, and that's why it has been such a, a cornerstone of of world tour cycling teams as well doing the lo- locate and stuff and things when you're training for a grand tour 
As for uh, short distance triathlon, I think his approach might not work as well, even though he has had some success there, but nowhere near as much as long distance. And uh, and yeah, I think it with that kind of training, you are sort of limiting how much you can you can improve your top end uh, top end speed that, that's required to do a really good sprint and even Olympic distance. One one thing that I think is is quite good, at least for long distance athletes, is that on the run side of things, he does tend to limit. They're never doing all out running, which I think for many age groupers, especially, is a good thing because it does reduce the injury risk a lot, and you really can get your running uh, your running strength and endurance up more than enough without doing that kind of really long searing intervals. Uh, so so that's something that that i took away from it that is quite a smart approach that you can structure things properly and and do a lot of hard work and fast work but without going super super fast and that can be a uh, a reduction of injury risk um, thing that that works well so those were a few thoughts from my side um yeah i just wanted to just a couple of points that came to mind there is you know number one the first thing that i just wanted to mention with all these ideologies is that um, you know, I think you guys will agree that it, the evidence shows the best way to improve running economy is pretty much to run more um, and, and just, you know, run more volume over time. So any approach that allows you to actually, you know, build run volume um, is probably a good one in terms of just becoming you know, more economical. Um, and the other point I wanted to add around the Sutton approach is with females is, you know, I think... Uh, I, I remember reading a while back just in terms of the females being able to recover a little bit better and, and how you how Brett kind of addressed that. Yeah, it's uh, something that I remember and I tr- actually remember trying to find research to support it and I didn't find any at the time. So so this is all based on what I heard him say and the notes that I took, but he did say that female athletes respond better to higher intensity uh, than male athletes and uh, male athletes are better responders to to a more volume based approach and he he uh, allocated that uh, difference in in training response to to the effect of te- on testosterone from the different types of training so i remember him saying that and and another thing that came to mind now when you mentioned the volume that uh, that sudden is known for his high volumes but it's not necessarily the case there are those days with with really low loads he also talked about uh daniela Riff's uh, win at kona last year and uh, so in 2018 and how up until i think eight eight weeks before the race if i recall correctly he said that she hadn't done a single ride longer than two hours so i don't know what her total training volume was but but apparently he left it really late to to build up her her long run and just doing a lot of strength-based intervals and uh and and that, I mean, it's it's all based on what he's saying. But I I don't see any reason why he would like blatantly lie about that either. I don't think that he would benefit from that no. at all. So, so yeah. And I think that still comes down to as James said, that requires one hundred percent athlete buy in. Um, and if you don't have that, then it yeah. just doesn't work. I mean, yeah, I mean, you chiggle to, I mean, I, I chiggle with that because if, you know, if I was an athlete and I was doing Kona and I'd done, done two hour rides, then that would be something that, you know, that would be definitely playing with your head. So it does require great athlete buy-in for sure. Um, but obviously he's got results. So I suppose they, they speak for themselves. 
So let's move on to the next one, which is the the polarized model, which uh, we talked quite a bit about as well. And uh, Steven Seiler has been on the podcast before to talk about that. And it's maybe the hardest one of uh, all of the approaches we have on the list here. So uh, James, take it away with the polarized model. So polarized trading. So essentially the three, the three zones that he uses. So zone one is up to the first threshold. Zone two is first threshold to second threshold in a nutshell. And zone three is above that. And obviously what Seiler is saying is, it does, you know, 80% of the training in zone one and, and 20% of the training in, in zone three. Um, you know, for me, when you look at the research that he's done, uh, you know, a lot of it has been done on, on cross country skiers and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's worked for, for, you know, for athletes with lots of time and the time available to do it. You know, I don't think you can argue with it that when you look at the research, you know, volume does yield results. So if you haven't done the volume, then you know, you're probably not going to be able to be you know, Olympic champion. You know, it's probably not going to happen. Obviously, everywhere there's there's caveats to that rule. Um, you know, you can get improvements from doing a large amount of high intensity training uh, in a short period, but you will stagnate. Uh, I think I think it's key take home message. Although when you look at triathlon, my, my problem with this approach is that when you look at triathlon and you look at the research that's been done by Isla, it's it's on um you know athletes who, like I say, are doing cross country skiing, are doing rowing, you know, slightly more intense sports that are you know often slightly shorter duration. So, you know, I think as the Norwegian head coach said, you know, potentially in triathlon you you kind of want a more more moderate approach, maybe something like twenty thirteen seven or, or some I mean eighty thirteen seven something like that seems to work better because actually you know we we do compete for a longer time and we need those energy systems that, that aren't quite threshold you know, we need the, that fat adaptation we need that ability to go you know in that that kind of middle ground sometimes so that that's my only problem with it uh really is you know i for me i think you know on general it works uh but you do need that that ability to to train in, in the middle zone sometimes for triathlon um and obviously the other thing is you know how do you distribute your time to make sure that eight percent of it is is really aerobic if you've only got nine hours a week to train for example I think I think that's quite hard to do, um, but definitely I agree with you know, the principles of it, and I can see you know where it's come from. I think just a triathlon, we just maybe need to modify it ever so slightly, just to make sure we are hitting everything we need. I don't. What do you guys think? Yeah, look, I reckon it's probably one of the most um, confused, not confusing, but I guess most poorly understood models out there in terms of you know how are we defining firstly eighty twenty. I guess yeah, as you first mentioned, like that LT1 or the, you know, the first, the aerobic threshold and, and be- between that and the anaerobic threshold is kind of termed that grey zone. And I guess and initially Sila would have said that, you know, all training would be either below that first threshold or above that second threshold. And, um, you know, I guess the first question there is the training that's sub LT1 or sub that aerobic threshold, how hard are we doing that? Because there's a big difference between training at, you know, aerobic threshold and training at 40 or 50% of, you know, of VO2 or something like that. Like they're, they're very different things and that's a massive range. Um, and, you know, it's the same at the other end. Once we go over um, anaerobic threshold, there's a there's a big range there as well. So um, I guess that's the number one question. Um, number two question is, is you know, the 80-20 is, are we talking about that on, on a time-based thing? Like are we talking in a 10-hour week, two hours of high intensity, or are we saying, you know, two out of every 10 sessions includes high-intensity intervals? And and I think that's probably, you know, where, if my understanding is correct, that Stephen would lie. 
Um, Michael, do you, would you agree with that? Uh, in, do you mean with the session that uh, yeah, is yeah. based on the number of sessions? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's uh, that's definitely what he would say. And he would say that the in terms of the time-based approach, then it would be more like 90% low intensity. Yeah. yeah, and I have a problem with the, the number of session approach because I just think that that's quite cherry-picked and that's sort of a conclusion I've come to more recently, I think. But just looking at different endurance sports and uh, and case studies and examples of how different coaches and athletes do things, uh, I just can't find much evidence for that being the case. Even yesterday, we talked about uh, a little bit about cycling training and and some programs that i found after that i actually went and looked into the cross-country skiing programs it was uh, a lecture series by Eivind sandbach who is one of the most famous norwegian researchers researchers and uh, cross-country skiing coaches and and looked at his the how he similarly laid out the programs for for his cross-country skiers and uh, when you look at those programs they're they're not uh 80 low intensity sessions and 20 percent high intensity sessions there's more high intensity than than that uh, but um, but i guess in in terms of time the 80 20 approach uh, probably does uh, is is true in most endurance sports and it might even be 85 or even 90 in some cases but as james said it can also be difficult at certain uh, certain durations of weekly volume when we get to the lower volumes and i know that there is some research to support that but I don't think that it's the be-all, end-all because uh, it really depends on what the other group did for their quality training and their uh, sort of easier training. So it's really difficult to to make a definitive judgment on that. And and I would say that anecdotally, at least, uh, it's eighty uh, percent might be just too much low intensity and for for really uh, time start time start athletes and and definitely for triathletes i think it's impossible to to adhere to the the session based approach because we need to do some high intensity in all disciplines because it is beneficial to do so and then the number of sessions we would do to be able to adhere to that rule is is uh, completely unrealistic yeah and look i would i think it's important so i was just going to say i would argue that um when we're looking at cross-country skiers cyclists um even you know elite triathletes where the, the amount of volume is quite high, um, you know, I, I would tend to think that that time collected kind of at or below that aerobic threshold probably plays a very, very big role in terms of VO2 max development and, you know, I mean, aerobic capacity. I think, you know, when, when we look at a polarised approach, I think people get drawn into the high-intensity stuff as being the key, but, you know, I would sit here and say that, um, you know, that, that work that's collected kind of at or below aerobic threshold is, is critically important in terms of developing aerobic capacity. Yeah, I mean, I think when you when you look at that on, on that point, you know, you can move your VO2 on without doing VO2 max work. I mean, if you work aerobically, then it is going to have an effect on your VO2. You know, these training systems aren't, aren't independent. So working one system will have an effect on the other systems. I think that's something that actually is mentioned in the interview you did with him, Michael, uh, you know, actually doing the high volume work, does work, does work on your VO2 to, as well. I think for me, you know, regardless of 80 20, I think, you know, when you look at the research, it does show that if you can combine a, a decent amount of high volume and some, you know, high intensity training, then you'll see the most results than, you know, 
just doing high volume training on its own and high intensity training on its own. So I think important to hit all those energy systems, but then to recognize that working one energy system isn't necessarily just working that energy system. So for example, if you're working VO2, then you're probably working over energy systems as well. And if you're just working that aerobic zone, then you probably are working you know, your VO2 capacity as, as well. Uh, I think that's important to, to mention. Yeah, definitely. And I think that uh, the big question isn't whether a big amount of uh, of low intensity training is important or not it's very clear that it, it is important the the big question that uh, that people want to to hear answered and uh, i'm afraid that we can't give a definitive answer but uh, is how, what to do with the the rest of the training so how should you distribute the the amount of training that is uh, above lt1 and there are many different approaches and we've already touched on many of them that are completely polar opposites in in today's episode I guess that what you mentioned, James, with uh, cross-country skiing being a, a more intense sport than triathlon in many ways, that that is a sort of it, it does indicate to us that uh, that for more intense sports that also have a pretty large anaerobic contribution, which cross-country skiing does because of the uh, the hills, for example, that they they need to ski up. That's always going to be quite anaerobic, similar to draft legal triathlon on sprint and Olympic distance races. Also have have more of that anaerobic component to it for those kinds kinds of more intense disciplines then probably distributing more of that remaining time at a higher intensity more specific to the race is probably going to be beneficial in in many cases at least but uh, and for longer distance triathlon which is more of a steady state uh, staying below threshold then the more uh, pyramidal approach is uh, is going to be uh, beneficial in in many cases, similar to what a lot of the uh, the world tour cyclists are are doing, even though they also have periods of of very high intensity in their their races. So so we still uh, they especially need that high intensity training. But but I think anybody can benefit from that. But it's just how you distribute the amount of moderate to high intensity training, and your goal event is probably one of the biggest factors of determining that. But the other thing really is. For example, as we we talked about what your physiological makeup is, if you have a high or a low VLA max, if you have a high VLA max and you're training for long distance triathlon, then uh, you probably should spend more time at moderate intensities but uh, and uh, and vice versa perhaps if your vo2 max is your limiting factor then maybe the remaining time is more of a high intensity approach so uh, so i think that it's um, it's not right to say that there's a right or a wrong training intensity distribution but the research that has been done definitely does add a lot of knowledge to your field but but we need to remember that it's all very contextual and uh, and we can't necessarily apply all the findings to all different endurance sports because they have different demands and i think we should also just note that for any individual athlete like that breakdown of intensities is never static you know um it's ever-changing depending on where you are in the year and and in relation to your racing and you know i think the other thing to to note and even if it is a bit more anecdotally is that uh, the body does actually like um, different stimulus you know over the course of the year and I think that's probably a key thing for you know finding improvement um, as opposed to you know falling into the trap of just doing the same thing all year um, irrespective of where you are in terms of the macro cycle so I think that's something that you need to sit down with your coach or or have your coach um, kind of map out at least a a bit of a plan around how you're going to build for certain races. Yeah, absolutely. So the final one on my list here is uh, the sweet spot. I, I call this the, the 
I guess trainer road model is, is one that comes to mind because a lot of our listeners are using trainer road. So I do tend to get a lot of emails asking about that. And if we describe it, it's uh, based on quite a lot of sweet spot work in the base phase in particular, but also combined with high intensity with uh, intervals at FTP or, or at VO2 max uh, between FTP and VO2 max. So, so kind of a quite a lot of high intensity in there and uh and and a lot of sweets but especially as the as the base so uh james if you start again what are your thoughts on this model obviously this is a it's a model that a lot of people like you say a lot of people are using um and you know it does it does lesser results you know um it it does actually build good glycogen adaptation and you know it gives you a lot lot of bang for your book essentially so a lot of your time is is used well you know when i see people do this method you know you do see that adaptation my my concerns about it are you know actually it doesn't elicit so much fat adaptation that you know you might you might want for example if you're doing a cycling race that's six hours long is it is sweet spot training the right the right way to go um you know if you're not combining it with other things, for example, uh, and also, you know, what are the what are the long-term adaptations? So, although you might see, you know, good short-term adaptations, are you going to see the longer-term adaptations that you might have seen when you, you know, for example, did a polarized approach or you know, combined a bit more high volume and high intensity together uh, rather than just doing polarized, uh, rather than just doing sweet spot trade on its own? So, yeah, I think you know, there's obviously as of all these things there's positives and negatives and it kind of depends on your circumstances which i'm I'm afraid is probably my answer for every single one of these ideologies yeah i i mean i tend to agree with you know with that but i guess the thing with the sweet spot training is um if i look at it say in comparison to pure threshold training then perhaps you know we are getting that minimum effective dose a little bit better um, and it's a, a little bit easier to recover from so in that sense um, I would probably lean towards say sweet spot as opposed to pure threshold um, it, uh, you know I think the thing is it, it is very time effective and you do get that bang for buck which for a lot of people just being able to to say get on the trainer and not really have to think too much is is um, practically very easy to implement um, but I, I guess you can fall into this trap of, um, doing sessions where, you know, feeling like you're smashed at the end of the session is something that you're actually striving for. And, and I think that that can be a little bit of a trap sometimes. Um, you know, we don't necessarily need to finish every session feeling like it was super hard. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, uh, the sweet spot approach itself is, uh, works very well. And I think we have a lot of anecdotal evidence from uh, elite cyclists and they're doing a lot of that but i think my main problem with this approach is that what the elite cyclists call sweet spot is uh, at a much lower perceived effort and relative power than what most age group athletes are doing whether they're using a software like trainer road or they're just uh, uh, doing it on their own based on uh, things like books like the training and racing with a power meter so doing a 20 minute test and then and and then basing your zones zones off of that i I think that i'm concerned that a lot of athletes end up training more or less right at threshold and really smashing themselves or and going too hard in that sweet spot in those sweet spot intervals rather than actually building a proper duration at sweet spot and i think tim cusick is somebody who who did a really good job of explaining how he uses 
a sweet spot based approach but but it's clearly not about smashing yourself it's more about building durability and and building up your accumulated volume within a session and within a week at sweet spot so it should be something that is sustainable and and in terms of trainer road as a software it's something that i have been using quite a lot i'm not using it at the moment but i haven't been using their training plans in a long time because i just think that they are too too intense which is a combination of the 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 structure of the plans but also on how they measure threshold and then set the relative intensities i think because i think they tend to overestimate the the ftp based on the testing that they do so people tend to get these quote-unquote vanity ftps that are just a bit too high for what their actual physiological threshold might be which tends to lead to every session becoming just slightly too hard and I, I, I'm, in my opinion, people always lean to the testing protocol that suits them. You know, like <clears throat> someone who is maybe anaerobically stronger will lean to a ramp test. Um, whereas I, I can tell you for myself, like doing a ramp test is so much lower than what I could hold for an hour um, just because I don't have the capacity to actually hold that much power for as long as for each, you know, minute step past threshold. Um Whereas I have some athletes that I coach who, if they do a ramp test, I, I mean, it's it's very clear that it's going to estimate their FTP far higher than what it actually is in practice. Um, and then the same thing goes for a 20-minute test. You know, athletes that are probably a bit more aerobically strong will perform better as opposed to those who are maybe less aerobically strong as well. But um, in any case, you know, using a 20-minute test as, um, you know, a, Estimate for FTP, I think, is, you know, practically it's very easy to implement. So um, I wouldn't say that I don't use it. I certainly do use it. And I guess the reason I use it is because it's, you know, repeatable and um, we can certainly measure progress on it. But does it actually allow us to know what we could do for an hour? Um, probably not. I think I think the best way to, to work out FTP and, you know, I've had some of the athletes do it is just to do that hour of power. And I know it's a horrible thing to do, but if you can do it a couple of times and you can see that relationship between the, that and the 20 minute, then that, that's something you can use. I mean, just going back to trainer road, I think, you know, I, I often see athletes who are using it and, you know, often I do recommend that they reduce it by about 5% uh, or, or something around that. Depends what your FTP is. And obviously that, that's an arbitrary value, but uh, yeah, I think it does definitely overestimate FTP a lot of the time. But then on the flip side, you know, technology is always evolving, and I think you know we can we can sometimes be a bit harsh around around these you know, things, which which are beneficial to, to most athletes who aren't going to be you know, world world champions. But yeah, there, there is definitely the aspect of yeah, is that the right FTP for you, uh, and it, are you doing the most effective training possible? Then you know, if if you're an elite athlete who's got all the time in the world, then potentially. Obviously, that there are much better ways of doing it. But if you're an amateur athlete who you know, maybe just wants to to do a couple of crit races, for example, then I don't see too much wrong with trainer road. You know, it's fun, um, but yeah, I think it does after, overestimate FTP, and there's definitely better ways of doing it. And then if your FTP is overestimated, or you know, it may be underestimated, if it doesn't suit you, then the training isn't going to be as efficient as it as it could be. I think another thing that that I tend to see, and and this is nobody's fault really, but it's something that tends to happen, because sweet spot training is a type of training that uh, where you can accumulate quite a lot of load, and if you measure load diligently uh, in terms of a training stress score, I think it uh, it tends to generate a bit of a dependency and uh, reliability 
on if you're building up a high chronic training load and just accumulating training stress score week in week out that that's what's going to make you fitter and faster and we tend to forget that about things like minimal effective dose but also forget about adaptations and adaptation there's no scientific evidence that that training stress score is correlated with uh, with endurance adaptations really it's just a model yeah. and and it's not my favorite model to be to be honest and i think i've talked about that quite a few times so so i don't tend to use training stress score and chronic training load anymore but i, I see that in in the crowd of people that do this type of training uh, they do become very dependent on it i think that you know the the trap is that you know ctl is equated to fitness and that's that's you know a big issue yeah, I think yeah, I think it's great. It's a great thing to use, you know, on the side, but but not as your, you know, you can see general trends from it. But I I wouldn't want to use it, and I don't use it for athletes as you know. This is the overall picture of what you're doing, and this is how things are going in terms of your fitness. But then you know, as of everything, you know, if we can use it to see general trends, then I think it's very useful. Um, but not as a not solely rely on it. No, not at all. Okay, I think that that there was the list, and I did have a couple of other questions uh, or topics on our list, general list of questions. But, but I don't know. I think we have actually already covered quite a lot of what I wanted us to to cover. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about when it comes to training ideologies in general, or any particularities of of specific ones? Uh, if so, please. Uh, tell me and uh, and and uh, get started uh, and otherwise we can move to like final take-home messages about ideologies i'm pretty happy to go to my take-home message to be honest but yeah you go james yeah i was just gonna say you know uh i was gonna sum up basically so yeah it's basically a take-home message but but i'll start it for me essentially underpinning any training you do has to be volume and frequency because they have the biggest impact so i think whenever you look at these training ideologies you got to look okay who was it who is it aimed at you know what what was the objective of it and actually you know what results of it um you know you can do high intensity training but if it isn't underpinned by you know a good amount of consistency consistency at volume consistency doing the right things you know to get that aerobic base then then you probably won't see results as you know that you want or you know the results down the line won't be as good as you want you know you've got to build that that pyramid from the bottom in in my opinion uh to have the best results but then they might not be your objectives if you just want to get around a crit for example and maybe be in the bunch sprint then bunch sprint then it might not be the most effective um training ideology to do a lot of volume it, it really depends on what your aims are yeah look at my end i think um you know, something that I advocate to all of my athletes is just learning to to train. I guess it's a bit hard in the swim, but to train at what I would call conversational pace. So you could hold conversation quite comfortably. I think that's a really important thing to learn how to do. Um, and if you're walking out the door for every session and it's always, you know, a seven, eight, nine out of 10, um, just taking the time to actually learn how to uh, train a little bit easier um, is certainly a worthwhile thing. Yeah, and, and my take-home message would be that I don't think it, even though like we have labeled things here, there are a lot of similarities and overlaps, and there are also polar opposites in the list of ideologies we've discussed. And I think what's important for for each individual athlete and coach is to not uh, not really fall into the labeling trap and saying that you have to do 
polarized training or you're doing sudden training or you're doing uh, linear training because i don't think that labeling helps us don't be married to the means of or the methods of training just like what you should be concerned about is the outcome of the training and and you don't want to i guess pigeonhole yourself or or just limit uh, constrain yourself to to any given training method just do the training that will give you the results you're after and and if you're not labeling yourself or or your training then that's going to be much easier to do so so don't get dogmatic about about training ideologies because uh, then they're not really useful but if you take the some positive uh, aspects of uh, of certain ideologies that you think might work in your context then they can be very useful tools because you're not being dogmatic about them or pigeonholing yourself yeah I suppose it's minimum effective dose and what can you actually do? So that yeah. would be my sum up. Okay. Thank you so much, guys. This was a, a really great discussion. So uh, looking forward to chatting to you on a future episode again. Great. See you then. Sounds good. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed that discussion. As usual, you can find the show notes on thattriathlonshow.com. And uh, I will link there to related episodes. Some of these different ideologies we have covered in uh, specific episodes, including Trisado, I had uh, Carson Christen on, and the Kenyan running model or Canova model. We have uh, we had uh, Matt from Sweat Elite on to talk about that. Obviously, Steven Seiler talking about the polarized model was one of the most popular episodes of the podcast in the history of the podcast. So uh, check those out. And if there's any other episode that I've missed right now, I will add them to the show notes. So there might be more than those three that I uh, came to think of right now. While you're on the website, if you're interested in anything from individual coaching to ready-made training plans, check out the products and services we offer there. And if anything is of interest to you, if you have any questions, feel free to email michael at scientifictriathlon.com. And that's Michael with a K. In next Monday's episode on That Triathlon Show, I interview Dave Cripps, who is a UK-based strength and conditioning expert, and we'll talk about uh, all the ins and outs of incorporating a strength and conditioning program into your triathlon training. And it is a very practical episode and uh, very illuminating from the perspective that, uh, for example, Dave is a proponent of uh, only spending one workout per week in the gym for most triathletes unless you have uh, spe- very specific needs but that is something that for many will come as a relief because it obviously places much less time demands on on you than you would have potentially imagined that a strength and conditioning aspect to your triathlon pro- program might do so uh, look out for that on monday and of course in the meantime we'll have a q and a as normal on thursday so stay subscribed so that you don't miss any of these episodes and now as i mentioned before the main discussion i am looking for somebody who can do web design and uh, and do the front end development for a wordpress website uh, I'm planning to do this project during early 2020, so I want to get rolling with uh, with talking with candidates for, for making this happen. If you are familiar with the Thrive Themes WordPress tools, that's a big plus because that's what uh, the website runs on, but it's not a requirement as uh, it is something that can be learned on the job, of course. 
So without any much further details, just contact me on michael at scientifictriathlon.com. That's Michael with a K. And we'll discuss it from there and see if it seems like a, a good fit. Now, thank you finally to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Get your free hydration plan to know how to, to hydrate and replenish your electrolytes in your next race. And try your first box or tube of electrolytes for free with the promo code DATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, buoyancy shorts and high performance eyewear. And use the new promo code TTS20 to get 20% off your entire order. Thank you as always for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.